All right, we are looking at Psalm 60 this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into this interesting passage. Lord, we need your word, and we have your word. We are good at filtering out sometimes those things which call us to a faithful, radical dependence on you. I I know that. I may be tempted not to see that in myself as as I look at Psalm 60 and not to present that to your people. May that not be, Lord. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have for us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up, my mom was from a poor German farming family worked very hard. So I grew up with stories from my mom about how she grew up. Now, I know all parents kind of expand the stories uphill in the snow both ways. But uh, then I would go to our family reunions also, which were story fests of what life on the farm was like. And so I grew up with the stories from my mom before school. She would go out and have to milk the cows every day in winter and in the summer. Gave her these great strong forearms, which I occasionally experienced on my backside as a kid, right? So I knew it was true. And all these stories of farm life shaped me profoundly. I mean, in, in retrospect, I, I realized I come from hardworking stock. And that just, those stories helped to shape me think hard work is just the way of life. It's what you do. You work hard. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it with all your might. You work hard. It gave me a great appreciation for the American farmer, even the poor American farmer that's feeding us and a lot of the rest of the world, a great appreciation for farming. And it said, Roger, you don't want to be a farmer. <laughs> Nothing wrong with farmers. I just, they work really hard. So those stories shaped me. It gave me an encouragement. This is my people. We're a hardworking people. It gave me thanksgiving. These farmers are amazing. And it gave me some warning. You don't want to be one of those. Stories shape us. Happens in our own families. You all grew up with stories in your family that still shape you to this day. It happens as a culture. We have uh, cultural stories that shape us. George Washington cut down a cherry tree. Did he? I don't know. That's a story. And you all know it. None of you knew George Washington. More recently in our store, in our, in our history, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gives a speech at the Washington Mall. I have a dream. I'm guessing none of you were there, but it has echoed down through history and it shapes us as a people even today, many years later. We are a story-formed people, even in a digital age that may not have as much appreciation for the past as former times. We are story-shaped people. Israel in the Old Testament was a profoundly story-formed and story-shaped people. They held the stories, they repeated the stories, they memorized the stories, they wrote them down, they repeated them, their children memorized them and passed them on to their children. Of particular interest today is one story buried in Exodus 17. We're not going to read it. It's the back, it's part of the background to some of this psalm. God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness where he provides for them manna and water. And he he says to them, I am going to one day send you into the promised land and you are going to conquer it. And until that time, you're going to have warfare from these other tribes. Now, anytime we talk about that, warfare in the Old Testament, and this psalm also talks about that, we have to stop and give a caveat of why 
was this warfare going on? Critics will look back and say, well, God is just bloodthirsty and he, he, made his, he favored his people so he had him kill everybody else. But when you actually look at what the scripture says, that's not exactly it. He says, guys, I'm gonna send you into this land not because you're better than everybody else, not because you're stronger than everybody else, but because I'm blessing you and the people in this land have issues. Namely, we talk about this all the time, but it bears repeating. Namely, the people in this land, they engage in false worship, profound injustice, and most pointedly to the Lord, child sacrifice over and over and over again. And because of the profound injustice, the false worship, and mostly the child sacrificing their own children to the God of Molech so they would be blessed, because they did that, they abdicated their claim on this land. And therefore, I am giving you this land. But if you go in and then adopt the practices of those peoples, you will abdicate your claim on this land as well. And wouldn't you know it, hundreds of years later, that's exactly what Israel did. And they were swept away by the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians. That's we're getting ahead of ourselves. They come out of Egypt. God sort of foreshadows this going into the promised land. And as soon as they get out, there's this army, uh, Amalek, led by, uh, became the Amalekites, led by um, a general named Amalek, king named Amalek, come and fight them. Now Israel, this isn't like national warfare. These little tribes, not like America invading Canada, which wouldn't happen. It wouldn't be much of a battle anyway. But like let's say, it's not like that. It's little tribal warfare. And Israel, they're not fighters. They're not a warring people. They were slaves for 400 years. They had no resources. They had no organization. And so they go into this this valley and they they fight uh, the Amalekites and Moses goes up on the mountain over, over the valley, overlooking it, and he raises his hands in a posture of worship and prayer and surrender to God. Apparently, the Lord told him to do this. And as long as his hands were up, he could look down the valley and see the Israelites advancing on the Amalekites. They were winning. But you know, if you've stood with your hand, I don't know, you wouldn't do this. But if you did this for 10 minutes, you'd be like, this is kind of hard. And over time, Moses' arms got tired. And as they began to sink down, he beheld that the Amalekites began to advance on the Israelites. And it's like, no, okay, okay, back up. And it's happened again. And then Aaron, his assistant, and her, his other assistant, came, and they held his arms up. And then the Israelites advanced and won that particular battle. That was a story that profoundly shaped the Israelites in their newly uh, out-of-slavery existence. Here in that story, the Lord is going to great lengths to show two things. That when there is active dependent trust and full engagement, like they actually had to fight, then good things happen. There had to be those both things, right? The active dependent trust and then the messy, unpredictable, difficult fighting that they had to do. They had to engage with what God said, which was move forward, but do so in active dependent trust on me. Those two things together, good things happen. Active dependent trust and active effort and faith. Now we have these odd stories like this and all these miraculous events sprinkled throughout the Old Testament of God acting in history, not to show us how God normally acts in history. They are to reveal God's character. And we know this because never again in the history of Israel do they fight somebody like tell their leader, quick, go up on the mountain and raise your hands. 
but all the time, there's a call to faithful, dependent trust on the Lord while they engage in a redemptive direction with his words. So these, these miracles and these signs are to reveal something about God and what his character is like and how he is. And that's what this psalm is getting at too. Not about how to fight at a tactical level, but that God is a covenant God who calls his people, you and me, if in Christ, into what we might call a covenantal partnership with him to actively act in our life while dependently trusting that he is acting for us. It's a covenant partnership. Now he's the strong partner and he goes first, but it is a real partnership. In your insert, in red at the top there, I put this in the inside of your insert that says Psalms and Anatomy of the Soul in the front. God calls his people into active partnership as he fights for them. That's what we're going to see in this psalm. God calls his people into active partnership as he fights for them. Now, history has moved on. No longer is there this theocratic nation called Israel. No longer is this little tiny strip called the Promised Land about the size of New Jersey. As we said in our call to worship, Psalm 24, the whole earth is mine. And how does God move into the earth? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, in, invading, if you were, our own lives. If you're here and you're in Christ, it's because the gospel has invaded your life. The gospel has invaded my life. And show me my sin and show me Christ uh, more than sufficiency for my sin. And that message goes out through the world into all the nations. We just prayed for a, a place in the world where the gospel is going afresh again through missionaries of ours in North Africa. That's what happens. The gospel goes out of the world. Things change. People change. That's what's happening now. And that, that call to partnership is true even when things seem bleak or even when they've been going on well for a while. So let's look at this. Psalm 60. We'll read it as we go through here. We're not going to read it all at once. The superscription, which is part of the psalm in the Hebrew, says this, to the choir master, according to Shushan Edith, a mictum of David for instruction. A mictum is a teaching psalm, so it's got a historical context, but a fluid application, including in your life and mine. When David, when he strove with Aram, Naharayim, also I didn't assign it for reading because it's hard to say these words. Aram, Naharayim, with Aram, Zoboth, when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, you'll be forgiven if you have no idea what that's talking about. Because why would you, right? Unless you've just read 2 Samuel 8 or 1 Chronicles 16, which some of you might have, but just in case, let me go back. David has become king and things are going very well. He's got a series of wins. David becomes king. He conquers Jerusalem, which wasn't uh, in Israel's ownership. He took Jerusalem, made it the capital. He has some victories over the Philistines, their, their arch nemesis. He brings the ark to Jerusalem, sets it up as the center of worship where the temple will be built. And then in 2 Samuel 7, the prophet Nathan comes to David and said, David, great news. One from your line will sit on the throne forever in this world and he will reign and there will be a worldwide peace. And we know, oh, that he was actually talking about Jesus who would come from the line of David, who several hundred years did come from the line of David. So these massive win, 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 win. And then there's this conflict on the northern border with Aram. David goes up there to fight, and the enemies from the south, the Edomites, take advantage of David being distracted up there, and they make a, a rearguard action coming from the south. 
And David dispatches his commander, Joab, to go fight them and then eventually joins them. But so they're fighting a war on two fronts, which is very hard. They, you know, no communication in those days except for horseback. So, no, not even horseback, foot by foot. So um, they're, they're, they're dispersed and they're distressed. But if you go back into 2 Samuel 8, or 1 Chronicles 16, where it's talking about it, all the time, so they're going to beat Edom and they're going to beat Aram. And that's all it says. Yeah, we won that battle and we won that battle. But if you go to Psalm 60, which was written in the middle of this, they're like, we're going to die. We can't make it. It gives us a window on sort of the psychological distress. So some of us know this, right? Some of you in your marriages, you look back and say, oh, those couple years were, whew, they were rough, but we made it. But if you went back into those years, when it was happening, you might say, man, I don't see any way we're going to make it through this. I think we're going to die. In 2008, when the, the, the market crashed, what also crashes were church finances. And there were times in this church, we're like, oh, my goodness. You know? And now we look back and say, yeah, that was rough, but God was faithful and we prevailed. But you go back into those elder meetings in 2008, 2009, we're like, I don't know if I'm going to eat and I don't know if we're going to keep the doors open. Lord, help us. You know, so some of you guys have things in your life right now where you're saying, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Uh, and as we hold on in covenant partnership, one day in the future, we will look back and say, that was hard, but God was faithful. And here we are. This is what it's like to walk with Jesus. We want to say there will be good times and never any bad times. That's just not true to life. What we see is there are good times and there are bad times. And God calls us into faithful covenant partnership with him in both. Don't know where you are, but I do know that you're being called into faithful covenant partnership. And this passage answers the question, what does that active partnership look like even in the worst of times? And these were bad times. Look how David describes them. Oh God, verse one, oh God, you have rejected us and broken down our defenses. You have been angry, restore us. You have made the land quake and have torn it open, repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given wine to drink that makes us stagger. So on the ground, it looks like Edom has broken through the southern border, and they are doing this, they are overcoming us. But David's like, no, there's a spiritual reality behind this. God, you're allowing this to happen. And we know that he says, you, 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 six times in three verses. Lord, this is on you. You're allowing this. It's like an earthquake. Think about earthquakes in those days before seismographs. You don't know when it's coming. It's deadly and destructive. The earth is opening up and swallowing on people. It's crazy. The earth feels like it's tottering, as he says there. And says here, the, the phrase he uses is, you have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Like, what's that talking about? That's an Old Testament phrase of the image of what the prophets call the cup of God's wrath which is wine to drink that makes us stagger, is what God gives to his people who are supposed to be faithless, faithful but are faithless, and it ends up in them being delivered into the hands of their enemies. And over and over again in the Old Testament, that's the wine given to us that makes us stagger, is when his people who had all the privileges and were called to be faithful are not, and they're given into their enemies, into the hand of their enemies. What we have here, apparently, now David was actually... One time in David's life, it seems he was walking faithfully with the Lord. But apparently there are others who were not. And what we have here 
is God withholding blessing from the whole because of the action of some? God withholding blessing from the whole because of the action of some. Now, as individualist Americans, that's kind of hard for us to hold on to. How does that happen? That doesn't seem fair. I'm a libertarian. Is God not a libertarian? Apparently not. (laughs) Right? Maybe he's not a libertarian sometimes. But we know this in our life. Dad gambles away the family finances. The whole family suffers. This is the way of the world. Right? In 1964, 88 senators voted with the simple word, I, A-Y-E. And our, the country we live in decided to have a military buildup in the Gulf of Tonkin in Indochina and South China Sea. And 10 years later, over 17,000 young men who were drafted, men, they were gonna do something else with their life, were dead because 88 senators said, yes, let's do this. It's called Vietnam, right? I'm not making a political comment. I'm just saying like a few people, 0.5%, had the, you know, directed the 99.5%. This happens in our world. It happens for good. It happens for bad. A few impact the whole. That's what's happening here. There were some in Israel who had fallen back into the ways of the Canaanites. Child sacrifice, uh, self-trusting uh, in themselves, false worship. You know, we have churches. Otherwise healthy churches can be destroyed by one public scandal. Or a few factious people who are really miserable. You know, we typically ask you to leave if you're like that. But actually, the Bible says do that. More than a factious man two times and, and gone. <laughs> so don't do that. But like, we, we, if that happens, it can just destroy a church. Denominations are destroyed for some, some public scandal that's not addressed until too late. Um, now, this disproportion runs both directions here in this story, because the solution to some being, to the blessing of, of God on Israel being withheld isn't for those people who are being faithless to become faithful. It's for the faithful and those who fear the Lord to wake up to what's happening. And that's what we're gonna see in the rest of the Psalm. So what does active partnership look like? Put it in your outline here. Just let, take it from the text. We look to the banner. We'll sp- explain what that is. Speak as the beloved ones. Listen to the voice of God and move in a di- act, uh, redemptive direction. Look, speak, listen, move. There's something to see, look. There's something to say, speak. There's something to hear, listen. And there's something to do, move with the Lord. Let's look at this. First of all, Look to the banner, verse four. You have set up a banner for those who fear or revere you that they may flee to it from the bow, selah. We think selah is a phrase that means, hold up, pause. Wait, stop. Think about this, meditate on this right there. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, or the word is really reverence you, that they may flee to you or to the banner from the bow. What does active covenant partnership with God look like in your life and in my life? We look to him as the banner. After Moses, that whole thing with the arms up, arms down, and battle, whatever. So they win the battle, and Moses knows it's because of part, God's fighting for them. He sets up a, uh, an altar and declares the name of the Lord there at that altar, and it's Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, our banner. This is a, a remembrance that the Lord is our banner, the, the, the one who fights for us. Now, banners in ancient warfare, unless you watch the old movies, you wouldn't know what it is, right? Think about it. In ancient warfare, there's no uniforms. Everybody's dressed the same. There's no way to communicate on the battlefield. You're just fighting. 
And unless you, that person is speaking a different language, you don't know, right? And most people, especially at that time in the Middle East, looked the same, right? They, they just were from different tribes. So a banner functions in lots of important ways. One, it's a, it's a, it's a, it gives direction on the battlefield, right? This way or that way. Having the banner still standing means your side is still alive. But most importantly, the banner functions as a place to fall back to. Of, of your, the enemy has broken through your enemy lines. You're kind of in the fog of war. You're turned around. You're not sure what's happening. Is anybody left? Am I alone? And somebody picks up the, the banner that's on the ground and waves it and yells, fall back to the banner. And you run to the banner. Not in retreat, but as a, to regroup in strength. So you're, you're one again. Moses, after this battle, says, the Lord is our banner. He is our rallying point. And now on this side of the cross, what do we see? What's the banner? The Lord is still our banner. And we get a little hint of this in the verse just before this. Where it says, you have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. The careful Bible reader who knows his or her New Testament would ask the question, where else is that wine? Where else does that cup of wrath show up? Anybody know? Yeah, the cross, the garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death, watch and pray with me. And he prayed, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me yet not my will, but yours be done. He's talking about the cup of the wine of God's wrath that would make him stagger and fall, that was normally given to faithless people, to to the people who were supposed to be faithful that were faithless, and when given, they were handed into the enemy hands. That was a cup designed for you and me. And Jesus drinks it down so that now even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Sometimes, guys, in the fog of war, the war of our life, we simply have to remember this. There's a banner. Jesus himself. We, we often so act like we have this orphan spirit and deal with the difficulties in our life on our own. And she's like, hey, over here, I'm for you. I'm with you. Run to me. Fall back to the banner. There's something to see, guys. Whatever's going on in your life, even if it's the fog of war, there's a place to go. There's something to see. Jesus, look to the banner. Sometimes we say, sometimes, like every third week here, we say, for every one look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. Anybody ever heard that before? Please say yes. Okay. It's everything, right? Every one look we take at our sin, take 10 looks at Christ. Every one look we take at distress in our life, take 10 looks at Christ. Every one time we're tempted to despair, take 10 looks at Jesus. Every time we look around this world and say it's hopeless, take 10 looks at Christ and say, I'm the banner. I'm the banner. And then we speak. If we see that, we speak as the beloved ones. Look at verse five. That your beloved ones might be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. This is this eruption of prayer. Give us deliverance. We are your beloved ones, Lord. That's very tender language. But this is how we're invited to pray. Dad. Dad. Remember us. 
how can we not pray that after we see that he's our banner? This is God inviting us into real communication. It's like, part of the reason the Psalms are so great is they're messy. They're messy. God lets us go through all these emotions, up, down, sideways. And we're calling out to him in all of them, and that might be the point. Okay. When there is that earnest, honest prayer, then there is something to hear. And let me unpack, I will say it, then I want to unpack it. Verse, or number three, listen to the voice of God. So the prayer is, hey, we're your beloved ones. Give us salvation or deliverance. Answer us. There's a, there's a plea, answer. And then the very next thing, verse six, God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now, I know as well as you, when I just read that, you heard this, wah, 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 next, okay? Bible places, Bible names, Bible history, yeah, 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 okay. Um, we hear the voice of God in, with, and after this urgent prayer. I don't mean this. This is not what I mean. Roger, do this and not that, right? Invest in this stock. Don't do that. Live your best life now. Okay, this is not, this is not what I'm talking about. When this says God is spoken, this is referring to things God has said long before this that are being made fresh again. Now, of course, nobody would know this unless you do the, the background. When it says Shechem and the Vale of Succoth, those are words for place names used 900 years before this psalm in the time of the patriarch. Didn't talk about that in, that way anymore. But Gilead, Manasseh, Ephraim, Judah, that's all present language to David. And when he's talking about Moab and Edom, these are places not yet promised to Israel, but promised in Psalm 24 when he says, the whole earth is mine. Like, remember, I made these promises to your forefathers. And I'm all through history, I'm faithful to you. And all in the uh, future, I will be faithful to you. And he's refreshing these things. So when we pray this earnest, we're your beloved one's prayer, what often happens is God's words spoken long ago become fresh in our own circumstances. That's what we talk about in Hebrews 4. It's like this, the living and active word of God. Yes, as we engage it earnestly and call out for understanding as the sons and daughters of God, then it becomes fresh again in this living and active way. God has spoken and, and, and it gives life again freshly in that moment. Guys, if you're in Christ, if, if you hear here the voice of God, th this is him sp having spoken and speaking to you. Over the last month or so, one of the books my wife and I have enjoyed is called Everything Sad is Untrue. Have I heard of this book or read it, listened to it? By Daniel Nyeri. He's an Iranian immigrant who, this book is written from the perspective of a 12-year-old Iranian immigrant living in Oklahoma City. Um, and the best, true story, backstory is his, his sister had this vision of Jesus and his mom ends up becoming a Christian, which is a problem because they're Iranian. This is in the early 90s. She's from a wealthy family. She's a Syed, which means she's actually of the, the lineage and bloodline of the prophet Muhammad royal family. She's a medical doctor, celebrated medical doctor from a wealthy family, but she comes, becomes a Christian. 
And the story is that how they had escaped Iran, all crazy, beautiful, sad, funny, all together, written from the perspective of a 12-year-old. Um, I would really encourage it. Uh, Nyeri is a believer, and it's tracing the real the hero of this story is the mom. The mom. And it, I just want to read a part of this to you uh, as a, to, to encourage you maybe to pick up this book, or listen to it at least. It's very good. If, especially if you get the version he reads. It's fantastic. Um, Sima is his mom's name. They go through unbelievable stuff. Difficult. Going to the embassy every day for a year while they're living as a refugee in Italy. Crazy. My mom was a Syed from the bloodline of the prophet. In Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity or Judaism, it's a capital crime. That means if they find you guilty in a religious court, they kill you. Man, this is from a perspective of a 12-year-old. And probably... And six years before that. And probably nothing happens if you're just six years old. Except if you say, I'm a Christian now in your school, chances are the committee will hear about it and raid your house. Because if you're a Christian now, then so are your parents probably. And the committee does stuff way worse than killing you. When my sister had this vision of Jesus and walked out of her room and said she met Jesus, my mom knew all that. And here's the part that gets hard to believe. Sima, my mom, read about him and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one, who keeps it in their pocket, she fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, to earn good things, but all you had to do with Jesus was believe he was the one who died for you, and she believed. When I tell this story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds in the walls, bird cages in the walls, not birds like high-end home, and all the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things that she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian. All the money she gave up, so we're poor now, but I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when the people ask her. She looks them in the eye with a begging hope that they'll hear her, and she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true and more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all of your family and a home and the best cream puffs in Jolfa and maybe even your life. My mom would, have made the, would not have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true and there's a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then he has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. There is no middle you can't say it's a quirky thing she believes, thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. She had all the wealth, the love of all those people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was a Syed, and now she's poor. People spit on her in buses. She's a refugee in places. People hate refugees. With a husband, she remarried a guy who was abusive in America. With a husband who hits harder than a second-degree black belt because he's a third-degree black belt. And she'll tell you, it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why Seema, my mom, converted. Since it turned the fate of everybody in the story, it's why we're hiding here in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can be certain she's dead wrong, but you can't make Seema agree with you. It's true. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The whole story hinges on it. Seema, my mom, who was such a fierce Muslim that she marched for the revolution, who studied the Quran in a way few people do, read the Bible, and knew in her heart that it was true. God has spoken. Friends, if you read in this scripture and say, yes, this is the speaking voice of God, there's no middle. 
There's no middle. He has spoken. And what has he said? A thousand things over and over again about his commitment to you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. That the one day the knowledge, his, the knowledge of him will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That we have an inheritance in Christ that is imperishable and unfading and cannot pass, pass away. That he's pursued us from all eternity into this part of your life and through all the rest of your life. That he's causing all things, even the hard things in our life, to work together for, the, for us being conformed to his image. He's spoken. He's spoken. And he's speaking to us. Now, if we look at our own personal resources, we may be very discouraged at that. But we don't have to end there. Finally here, we move in a redemptive direction. There's something to do. Verse nine, who, so David stops fighting on the north, comes to coming south. He's going to Edom, this invading army. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Now, most scholars think this psalm is composed when David is heading from the north of Israel to the south, heading in Edom, because he's going to go to the capital of Edom, the city Petra. Not the cheesy rock band from the 80s. Petra, the city. I, just, I love Petra, though. I'm just kidding. Sorry, John Schlitt, if you're listening to this. Not that you would. Okay, so uh, Petra is a mountain fortress, and it was you had to get to it to a mountain pass, one of part of which was only a few feet wide. If you ever saw the movie, uh, The 300, The Battle of Thermopylae, The Hot Gates, where a few Spartans defend against the Persian army, that's what it's like. Um, and David's like, I have no idea how we're gonna get into the city, but we're going. Verse 10, have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. That's the real situation historically because some have been faithful, but we've returned. We see you are the banner. We've called out to you. We've remembered your past spoken words which are fresh again. Verse 11, oh, grant us help against the foe for vain is the salvation of man. With God, we shall do valiantly or mightily or strongly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So David moves in the direction of God's promises and his word. Edom is mine. David says, okay. Here we go. Does it require effort? Yes. Does it require effort to move with God in our life in the direction of his word and promises? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. Is it messy? Almost certainly. Is there certainty? No. Is it good? Definitely. What happens when we move in the direction of what God has spoken? Here's what happens sometimes. People get loved who were not loved before. Our neighbors get loved in a way they were never loved before. When we move in the direction of God's promises. Deep formation happens within us. Forgiveness and reconciliation happen. You may have somebody in your life or in your family that you're at odds with and there's a division. Go first. Go first. You're forgiven of all things. You have now the capacity to move, to move towards somebody in love, even if they've never given you one sign that they would reciprocate well. What happens when we move in the direction of God's promises? Kids get adopted. Foster parents get raised up. Churches get planted. Mission fields get opened up. Addictions get addressed. Marriages get healed. 
A thousand other things. What needs are need addressed in your own life or your family or your neighborhood? This is good individually, it's good corporately too. We need to think as a church, as elders, as, as leaders, as people praying together, how can we move in the direction with God on the east side? Sometimes we forget to do that. I think over the, since COVID, kind of we forgot to do that and believe God is like calling us back to him in that new city. To the banner, let's move together. Now, if we look to our own strength, that's pretty vain. That's what David says in verse 11. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. It won't work if we have our own strength, but we're not alone. Like Moses said, the Lord is our banner. It is he who will tread down our foes. Verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Let me just make, Taylor mentioned this last week and in a couple of sermons, the Bible, Psalms talks a lot about foes and enemies. We come to the New Testament and the curtain gets pulled back. And I put this in your insert on the back sheet. Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Behind all things that oppose the gospel, behind all people, structures, whatever, there is another foe, the enemy the Bible calls Satan or the devil or the accuser or the deceiver that's giving impetus in life to these things. Now that may come through structures, organizations, or people, but here's the thing. When it comes to people, we may look at people, but we're not, we're not ultimately saying, you're our enemy. We're, there is an enemy-like quality, but we're praying for their redemption, not destruction. But we are waiting for the destruction of the evil that lies behind that foe. So, that's why in Romans 12, we have words like this, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, it's okay, you will have enemies perhaps. Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's ambiguous. Is it coals of repentance or coals of judgment? We don't know. That's not up to us. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Jesus in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So there are people in this life, maybe that stand against you or the gospel, or maybe it's that person is reaping destruction in your family or against your family, and you want the evil behind that to stop, and you know that Jesus one day will destroy that evil, and you're praying for the redemption of that person. It's this tension that we're in. And so what do we do in that? We move with God in the direction of what Jesus just said, I will be kind, I will love, and I will pray against the evil that's animating this whole thing. And it's not dependent on me. It's dependent on the one who will tread down our foes. And with this, we're going to the communion table. That phrase, tread down our foes, it's, it's a hyperlink back to Genesis 3. It's a hyperlink back to Genesis 3. When sin has come into the garden and destroyed things and God gives the curse to the serpent, Satan, and he says this, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is the G Jesus. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel or he will crush your head. He will tread you down though it will cost him. And that's what we have at the cross, friends. 
Jesus treading down the ultimate evil that animates all other things, that we are safe and secure and can move with him redemptively in this earth and in our life. What we have at the communion table is the picture of Jesus treading down that foe and reminding us what he spoke to us, this is my blood, this is my body, and what he continues to speak, given for you, given for you. If you're in Christ and Jesus has shed his blood for you, this table is open to you. Let's pray. Jesus, you have tread down our enemies. Some of that's still ongoing and in the middle of this life, you call us to fight through love and courage and faith and self-giving, sacrificial joy and risk and messiness and you promise to work in and through that because you've already worked in front of it. Help us to believe that afresh now as we come to the table.